hard to pray. We've had a sermon series already this year. We've most of us have read a book, and yet it's not like it's been a quick fix. It's hard to pray. It's hard enough sometimes, isn't it, to speak to a a good friend about something we need. But when that request gets addressed to God and is labelled praying, it just gets a bit complicated in our heads sometimes, doesn't it? And yet, for those who have trusted in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit and we've received from God, in the words of Paul, the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, those of us who have the spirit have by that spirit, a new sort of father-orientated direction. We, in other words, we want to pray. We want to come to our father. We believe in prayer. We want to pray. And we can't imagine abandoning it. But when we do it, it can still be really frustrating. I don't know whether this would describe you like it describes me sometimes. Our hearts are sometimes cold, distracted. Maybe we conclude prayer is a bit boring. Maybe off the back of all the teaching and reading and chatting to others. Maybe you're sitting here today feeling a little bit second rate. You've read about Paul Miller and his book. You've read George Miller. You've read about the great saints of old and you feel a bit second rate. Well, God is infinitely kind to us. And as useful as the book we've read was, he's given us something better. Simon's just said he's given us the Psalms, Israel's songbook, Israel's prayer book. And we see it is possible to have a meaningful prayer life. And one way to cultivate that, one of the main ways, because it's the way Jesus went about it, is to pray through scripture, to pray through the Psalms. So we're going to spend the next four weeks in the Psalms. This week, a bit of an introduction, and then three weeks looking at the three main different types of Psalm. I think we're going to see three things. Hopefully we will. We're first going to see that the Psalms teach us how to relate to God. These are God's words. Here, as we look at the Psalms, we're going to be taught how to pray. We learn to pray as we pray the prayers of the Bible. And as we look at Psalms of thanksgiving, of praise, of lament, we see how we can address God in prayer. We're given words to do it when maybe we have none. The Psalms also, they can teach us how to feel, which if you're a repressed British lamb myself is a good thing. They teach us how to taste, as our verse says today. They are God's chosen way to engage our thinking and our feelings in a way that's passionate, it's thoughtful, it's authentic. The Psalms help us know how to direct our emotions, how to respond to tragedy, how to respond to difficulty, how to respond in good times, in bad times. They show us how to speak to our Father. That doesn't mean the Psalms are man-centred. They don't just tell us what to do no no what they do is they contain a vast picture of God maybe more than any other Old Testament book they help us see how we can relate to this God they celebrate his glory so the Psalms are going to show us who God is they're going to show us how we can relate to him secondly the Psalms are what Jesus prayed what he still prays the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray we saw that in our series right at the start of the year if you remember Jesus would have prayed the Psalms. We see this in many of his quotes in the Gospels, that the Psalms give us a window into how Jesus learned to pray when he was in his fully human form. If if you're following Jesus, they show us how God's people now are to pray as the spirit of Jesus leads us in praying and praising in the Psalms. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wonderfully says this. He says, we learn to pray when we pray the prayers of the Bible. 
They are themselves the prayers which Jesus prays. And so in praying then, we're praying with Jesus, learning to pray as he has prayed, and he continues to pray. Wonderful. And as we'll see, the Psalms all find their fulfillment in Jesus. They point to him. They cause us to see how he feels, how he felt. They, they show us his character outlined in some of the Psalms. They help us to praise him as we reflect on them and on him. Thirdly, the Psalms shape us. Songs and poems as the Psalms are are formative. It's why we sing each week as well in church. We, we regularly sing words of Psalms ourselves. We sing hymns and songs which aren't often teaching us new things, are they? They're embedding in us truth which we know. That the words of the songs are placed on our lips to be sung. You can see it positively. Think about parenting or, or, or just working with young children. Whenever I get something from my little boy Duncan, we encourage him to say thank you. He didn't know himself how to respond to, to that. He, doesn't, he didn't know. We had to teach him that. He wasn't likely to come up with it by himself. And so you find yourself in the odd position of asking him to say, thank you, Daddy, whenever I do something. It's a bit like I'm demanding praise from him. Go on, thank me, son, thank me. But he goes along with it, though, and he doesn't complain about it. And then it's glorious when sometimes, without prompting, he says, thank you, Daddy. It's a gift. It doesn't happen all the time, but slowly that habit is being formed, that thankfulness is being formed in him to be grateful, which we pray will be a lasting habit, a lasting fruit of how he's used the world. Left on our own, there are many things we would not naturally say to God. We wouldn't maybe naturally say thank you. We wouldn't actually say sorry. At near the top of the list. But when we read scripture, and in our context here, when we read the Psalms, they're forming us in how to respond, in how to speak to our God in times of feast and times of famine. Songs, poems, Psalms, they're formative. They shape us. They're formative as we gather as a church today, when we gather together and when we say them on our own. So our aim in this series is that it may enrich our prayers. We may feel empowered in which to use this wonderful book of 150 songs of the full gamut of human experience and emotions to shape us, to shape our hearts, to cause us to worship Jesus more and more. That's our prayer. Let me pray before we dive into Psalm 34. Father God, help us today to taste and see that you are good. Help us, your children, to listen to you, to be taught the fear of the Lord, to come close to you because we know you are near, because we know you listen. Amen. So keep Psalm 34. Let's turn to it with me as we see what it can teach us as we start this series together. Verse 1, read it with me. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Let me stop there. Really, David? All times? Always? Okay. Um, read me again. He delivered me from all my fears. Cheers, David. Once again, really helpful. Um, God saved me out of all troubles. Come on, David. It, like, you read this. <laughs> Does that mean you go, is that your story? How on earth can I pray this? Maybe you're sitting there going, my life is hard. I've got, I've got this going on, I've got that going on. This happened in the past. I'm worried about this. And, and for many of you, I know that maybe experience you've got. So how on earth could David pray? But surely late David, he just had a good life. He was sorted. Well, Glad's read it. Did you notice right at the top of the psalm, 
It's not an addition in the new NIV translation. It's part of the psalm here of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. The circumstance in which David wrote this psalm are not good. You can read it in 1 Samuel 19 and 20 later if you want. David, uh, he wasn't yet king. He was being ruthlessly hunted by the current king of Israel, Saul. He, he sent men to hunt and kill David. Saul himself had launched a spear at David in anger recently. And he's now on the run. He's fleeing this mad, powerful king. So he, he's got an enemy at home. And if that wasn't enough, he's now running into another enemy in nearby Gath. Achish, the king of Gath, immediately becomes jealous, hostile towards David. So what does David do naturally? Well, he pretends to be insane so they won't kill him. And as a result, they let him go. And it's at this point that David wrote this psalm. It's at this point that David says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. It's at this point in what must have been loneliness and pain and confusion in some senses, he writes, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. How could he praise God in the midst of pain? How can he praise God in the midst of it? Because this psalm, like the rest of scripture, makes clear that the people of God will be afflicted. That they will experience pain. They will experience fear, anxiety, sadness, brokenness. This room is a testimony to that. So I'm sure none of you have come to faith and suddenly experienced bliss the whole time. Following Jesus does not take all that away yet. Notice the words in this psalm, which remember is a psalm we can identify with. It's given to us, a psalm God has given to us as part of his word to help us, to comfort us, to challenge us. Notice the words of verses 15 to 17 with me. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What do these verses tell us? That the righteous, that those who have been made right before God by his son, they'll cry. They'll have troubles. They'll be brokenhearted. They'll be crushed in spirit. But notice what God is like. He sees. He hears. He's attentive to their cry. He delivers. He's close. He saves. What a wonderful comfort. And these verses hopefully encourage us to pray, to come to God, to bring to him our toils and our troubles which will come. So we're going to follow David's pattern. We're going to see how to pray like David in the midst of suffering. We're going to look at another psalm of praise of Langs in a few weeks. We're going to look in a couple of weeks at time at a lament as we drive into how to respond when life is as it so often is so hard. And the only thing we can do is lament. But here we're going to see how to praise like David in the midst of trial. So firstly, how to praise like David. Do good whilst you wait. With all these absolute phrases, it's easy to roll our eyes if we don't get the bigger picture. Come on, David, you've really been saved from all your fears, from all your problems. But we need to make it clear that the assumption of this psalm is that deliverance doesn't come immediately. Verses 11 to 18 show us this. God is is not our genie who gives us our wish as soon as we ask. He's a God. He rules the universe without our input. He, He freely chooses to rescue the righteous, and he does so on his timetable. God intends 
for his people to endure in suffering that doesn't disappear right away. So I read from 1 Peter earlier, Peter uses Psalm 34 as a strong basis for his first letter to a suffering people in the same time zone as us, after Jesus, before the new creation. And it has this same theme. 1 Peter 1 verse 6, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That means longer than you want, but small in relation to eternity. 1 Peter 5 verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 1 Peter 5 verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. It's worth clarifying that, that the promise of rescue we see here is not a promise of immediate rescue. And secondly, the suffering is not an excuse to practice evil. Rather, as we wait for God's rescue, the call is to do good. This psalm is in two parts, from verses 1 to 10. It's David calling us to rejoice with him. And the second half is his lessons learned, as he says, learn from me. Verses 11 to 14, come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This psalm tells the pain of suffering, of anguish, of affliction is no excuse for evil. Unjust treatment at work, childhood trauma, being insulted for your faith, injury, illness, family problems, it is no reason for God's people to act like the devils. It's no excuse for gossip, for sinful anxiety, for sinful angle, for anger, for laziness. In fact, affliction is a call for God's people to do the opposite. It's game time. Will our lights really shine and give glory to our Father in heaven or not? Maybe that's a challenge as you look back on the last 18 months or so. An excuse to lack maybe for some of us. That's what Peter picks up on as he speaks to persecuted Christians in his letter. He says to the insulted, to the awfully treated Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a challenge as we pray this psalm. The psalms are, are prayers. They also shape us as we've seen. In the midst of affliction, whatever it is, what good are we doing whilst we wait for it to end? Have we let our pain become an excuse for sin? Are we doing good to others whilst we wait? It's the first thing we see. Secondly, how do we praise? How do we pray like David here? We remember God's glorious rescue. You notice the utterly over-the-top language in the psalm as David spoke of God's rescue? Notice all the alls and the nuns. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Verse 4, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5, their face shall never be ashamed. Verse 6, God saved David out of all his troubles. Verse 9, those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 17, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their troubles. Verse 19, the Lord delivers the righteous out of all their afflictions. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Delivered from all fears, all troubles, all afflictions. So naturally we ask, does God always deliver us? Is that a blanket promise? 
Well, the answer comes in verses 19 to 20 with the final alls. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. These verses are a prophecy. They ultimately point towards Jesus, the righteous person who had many troubles, whose bones were protected, not one of them was broken. It's quoted directly in John's Gospel, as we're told that unlike most crucifixions, they did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And that's odd in some ways, isn't it? Because you go, sure, his bones weren't broken, but he did die. Even though his bones weren't broken, he died a painful, horrible death. God didn't save him from that. He doesn't promise to save us from suffering in this life. He didn't save Jesus from death, but his protection of Jesus extends past the grave. He raised him from the dead. Bones being unbroken, they're a biblical theme. You can trace them from Genesis all the way through. Ezekiel 37, you may know the valley of dry bones. What are bones, unbroken bones, point to their point of resurrection? While God may not protect us from every bad thing, that might, has, or could happen. Ultimately, through resurrection, you're safe if you're in him. We, we walk through death. Some of you may have walked through that quite recently with, with friends, with family. We ourselves will walk through death. And if you're in Christ, if you put your trust in him, the promise is we will be rescued. We will come out the other side fully restored, fully healed, fully saved, fully protected. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them. To the other side of the resurrection, where true hope and happiness lie. How could David pray this psalm? Well, in God's wonderful providence, somehow David grasped the as he wrote this. And as Peter says in his letter, the sufferings of this life are like momentary troubles. How can we have a perspective like David? We need a vision like David. We need to keep coming to the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. We need to keep meditating on his work. The power displayed in the resurrection, the promises of hope to come. And that will help us keep going when life is hard. That will help us keep being able to pray prayers like this. Thirdly and finally, how do we praise like David? We praise together. This type of psalm does this all the time. Did you notice the first few verses? They kept slipping back and forth from David to us. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Then he goes, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Third person, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt or magnify his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt the name of the Lord together. The Psalms do this again and again. The Psalm wasn't just a personal poem of David, just a personal prayer. It was designed to be prayed by others, to be claimed by others, clung to by others. As we share with one another, as we speak often of God's goodness and his deliverance, it causes us to praise. Wonderful, wasn't it, if you're at our church meeting on Wednesday to hear some stories from church members of what God has taught them or, or done in the lives of their friends this year. Hopefully that caused us to praise God's name together. That was the aim of it. It wasn't just interesting information. It caused us to exalt him, to magnify him. Maybe that's a habit we can get into if we're not into it already as we speak to each other, to regularly speak of God's goodness, of what he's up to in our lives together. 
verse 3. Uh, probably a better translation maybe is let us magnify his name together. Let us exalt his name together. Think of it like a telescope. Zooming in and in and in to see God in his fullness. And you keep zooming in and you still wouldn't be able to comprehend God and what he's like. He is enormous in every way. And so often our view of God is so small. David here had a big view of God. My view of God is so often so pitifully small. But this psalm helps us expand our view. He calls us to zoom in on God, to see him in his glory and his magnificence, to magnify him in our minds and to do it together. We see this this call again and again to fear God. It's not to be scared of him, it's to be in awe of him. Fear the Lord, you as holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. There'll be a right fear there, right scareders in some ways, but to be in awe of him, to see him rightly, to marvel at him, to rejoice to not do what I so often do. I don't know if you found it, if you again have a church meeting, you so I put up the series we'd done and you sit and you go, oh, yeah, I remember being told that. Do I remember that changing me? So easy, isn't it? Just go, yeah, good, get that, good fact. No, the call is to rejoice him, to praise him as we get his magnificence. And if this psalm is truth, if this God it speaks about is what he is really like, then the only reaction is to magnify him and praise him. And we're reminded here to do that in community, to do that together in church with God's people by David's continual call to exalt, to call to us. He calls us again and again to exalt him together. God is magnified. He's exalted. He's praised when together we taste and see his goodness in the midst of affliction. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this now as we start this series? What's our aim in some ways? Well, David wants the people, he wants us to experience this ourselves. He wasn't just, it wasn't like a brag this song. Look, I can extol the Lord at all times. I've got it. No, no. This call here is to say, is this our experience? Friends, is this your testimony in times of trouble that you can praise him? What David does, he piles up the evidence again and again of his own life. He piles up the evidence how God has been trustworthy and faithful and he calls on the people to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's reversed on the back of our cards. He wants them to know God's goodness, to know it. Not just in their heads, not just a song they trot out and say, but in their experience. Anyone here watch Bake Off? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Let me tell you why. Um, it's like me with a podcast I listen to, off-menu podcast. I can, I can vaguely recommend it, but I'm about to diss it. Two comedians, they interview someone each week about what their dream meal might be. Uh, ideally, after this, it'd be great to chat about Psalm 34, but if not, ask people what their dream meal is, because it's quite an interesting conversation. Uh, but it's deeply unsatisfying to listen to, because you want to eat the food. It's the same with Bake Off. You want to taste it. I don't care what Paul Hollywood says about it. I want to taste it. You've seen the headlines maybe this week about the 700 pound steak from Salt Bay. The guy pours salt on like this. It's gold leafed. Uh, you read it, you want to taste it. You don't want to pay for it, but you want to taste it. You don't just want to read about it. I want to know is it worth 700 pounds? It's definitely not worth 700 pounds. We all know that. But I want to taste it. And the metaphor here is great. Reading about food is not the same as tasting it. You cannot taste something from a safe distance. There's a commitment involved. And David is saying here, you've seen the evidence. You've seen thousands of times in scripture about how God is good and God is trustworthy. 
Now discover him for yourselves. Don't just take my word from it. He's saying, come to God, rely on him, lean on him and find that he can take the weight and he can hold you firm. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Marvel with me at verses 15 to 17 again. God watches over us. God, the creator of all things, hears us. God is attentive to your cries. He's not like the parents on their phone while the kid wants their attention. He's truly present. Maybe we fear God is not like this. We, we think he's remote, he's not interested, that maybe he doesn't hear our prayers. You say, God, I've, I've prayed for deliverance a hundred times from this. I've asked you why. God, save me, help me. And, and it can be really hard to trust in a God like that when we think he's remote and distant. But we see here, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God's face is turned towards his people. He is attentive. He is present. He knows all we do even before we tell him. None of our tears are hidden. None of our fears are concealed. God is never too caught up in his own business to care about our struggles. And he doesn't just listen. He longs, he acts to do good. His eyes are towards us to do us good. That is what God is like. Maybe you're at church then, you don't know this God. Maybe you've heard of God. You think you know him, but what you've seen in Psalm 34, he just doesn't stack up. You, you maybe see him as a, a sort of distant, unavailable, distant force in the sky. Or a kindly but pretty incompetent, clumsy grandfather. That is not what God is like. Put your trust in him today, maybe for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth time. God's eyes are on us. His ears are listening. What difference would it make to go about each moment of each day remembering that God's eyes and ears are moment by moment turned towards us in love? Even when life is unimaginably hard and we don't understand what he's doing. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're ever feeling like this, the Lord is close. He's near. And through Jesus, he's as near as he could ever get. Because if you're in Christ, if you put your trust in him, you're united to him. And in him, we find deep satisfaction. We can fling all our longings and our pain onto him. If you're in Christ, you can have a deep friendship with him. So what do we do? Well, there's two things. Take it all to God. As we pray to him, we will taste his goodness is the promise here. Whatever is going on in your life right now, take it to God in prayer. And if life at the moment is relatively rosy, bank this psalm. Bank it for when life inevitably at some point won't be. But what we can all do, no matter what is going on, is we can pray this psalm for others. I'm going to model that in a moment. This week is... You go through your prayer list as you pray for people in church, for friends, for family. Use this psalm to pray for them. Pray that they may be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Here in the psalms, here are the very words of God. 
given to us to help us to pray. Let me now pray for us before we sing. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Father, help us here to magnify your name. Expand our vision for who you are. We repent, we're sorry for when we see you so unlike how we see here. When you're a small God, magnify our view of you. Lord, I pray for each of us this week that we may taste, we may experience your goodness. We may see it as we throw ourselves onto you, as we take refuge in you. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to fear you. And Father, help us to confidently come close to you no matter how we feel. Knowing that your eyes are on us, your ears are attentive to our cry. We're sorry for when we, we view you as a God who doesn't care. Where we view you as a God who's just distant. Where we, we think he doesn't want to hear me from me again. Lord, we praise you that you are close to us. And we praise you ultimately that you promise full salvation and deliverance for those who are trusted in you. That through Jesus you protected his bones. That promise of resurrection, Lord. Help us in this world with its ups and downs, Lord. Help us to look to Jesus, to see the example of his life, how he endured suffering, endured affliction, saw them as momentary in light of the glory to come. Help us to come to you in the midst of this life now, before you return in glory. Help us, Lord, to taste and see that you are good. Amen.